How to Be a Rebel Leader is a show about individuals who raise organizations to new levels by challenging the status quo, pushing for change, and fighting for their beliefs. Hear stories of their journeys to success and the passion it took to get there. This is How to Be a Rebel Leader. I'm Marcella Lobo. On today's show, the story of an entrepreneur who built a successful business acquiring companies and now teaches hundreds of MBA students how to do the same. Alex Schneider bought his first company at age 18 and has been buying and selling companies ever since. He currently owns two companies, a chocolate confection business and a wholesale bakery and has several other investments in search funds. An adjunct professor at Kellogg School of Business, Schneider teaches entrepreneurship through acquisition. Now is the time to, you know, take that entrepreneurial leap because, you know, even failure, and, and it's even hard to even define what, what failure is uh, when you're an entrepreneur, um, the, the downside of it is so de minimis relative to the potential upside. And I mean, I, I think that's, you know, one of the big takeaways that we talk about in my class, and, and it's, you know, Sam Zell, who uh, is the benefactor of, of one of the programs that I run here, I, I think uses this question to ask, um, you know, when he gets a deal is, you know, are you being compensated for the risk? And I think that question is so relevant when you're not just evaluating a business to acquire, but also this point in your life, you know, it, are you being compensated for the risk? Like the, the risk um, in taking an entrepreneurial endeavor today is not that low. I mean, there's not that, the, the, the risk of failure isn't um, so demonstrative that, you know, you won't be able to get your life back even if it wasn't successful. But the upside is so compelling that it compensates you for, for taking that risk. So Alex, you bought your first company when you were 18. That's pretty impressive. Um, how did that happen? Uh, well, it was sort of uh, being at the right place at the right time. Uh, I had come to Northwestern uh, early uh, to, to uh, try out for the soccer team and, and made it, but uh, the classes didn't start for a couple of weeks, so I was kind of looking for some other things to do. I met some uh, older Northwestern uh, students uh, who had uh, built a, a small business around shipping and storage over the summer and they needed some extra labor to return boxes that they had stored. Mm -hmm. uh, so met some of these guys. Interestingly, one of them is, uh, is was Seth Meyers uh, from uh, The Tonight Show. <laughs> really? Yeah. Celebrity uh, friends. <laughs> exactly. Who would have thunk it back then? Um, but, uh, uh, you know, just got to know them and, and, you know, continued to kind of work for them off and on during the school year. And uh, as they graduated, uh, they were interested in, you know, selling the business that mm -hmm. they had. I mean, it was a real business. It was an S corporation. That was the first time I ever heard about, you know, a form of a corporation or anything like that. There were legal documents, there was insurance. I mean, there was, they, they'd actually made a real business out mm -hmm. of it. And so uh, myself and a couple other uh, guys basically bought it for effectively an earn out. We, uh, uh, bought it for a percentage of uh, future revenue uh, uh, that we would be able to uh, achieve. And um, that was kind of my education. I quote unquote retired from the soccer team uh, the next year and uh, 
spent the next couple years uh, growing that business, adding new business lines to it. Before we started the interview, you mentioned that your dad was possibly your hero. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? From where he came from to where he is today, um, it's it's pretty amazing. It's the embodiment of you know the the American dream. Um, so uh, my father is ethnic German, <laughs> Reinhard Johann Schneider. Uh, there, uh, he grew up in a German um, sort of settlement in Romania, but during World War II, obviously there was a lot of displacement, not too dissimilar to what's happening now. Um, and ethnic Germans fled, and, and uh, uh, his family, uh, when he was very young, went to Austria, and he grew up in Austria in a refugee camp. And um, over time, he and his, uh, you know, uh, family. Uh, were able to emigrate to the U.S. and I think he came over when he was about 12 years old um, and uh, did well in school and uh, uh, you know ultimately sort of made a great life for you know himself uh, and you know it's interesting because I think of him and how far he came but it also impacted I think his risk profile I mean again like I said my my parents generation um, both my uh, father, his sister, my mother, and her brothers and sisters uh, a little um, more risk averse because of what they had to um, sort of achieve to kind of get to where they were. I mean, for them, success was already achieved by coming to uh, coming to America and, and being able to uh, uh, leave sort of war-torn countries and um, political persecution in the case of my, parents, my mom's um, side. Um, so, again, providing for their families was sort of the ultimate priority. So my dad, um, very well educated, um, you know, two master's degrees and, and, and whatnot, but, but never really entrepreneurial, worked at the same bank effectively for 36 years. That bank had a couple different shingles, but, um, you know, he's a, he was a company man and that was very satisfying for him because it gave him obviously the opportunity to provide for us, um, but also stability. And you know, it's not something that he had, and it's something that I take for granted. I mean, you know, the opportunity to um, you know go to a great school as an undergrad like Northwestern, the opportunity to um, experience things that uh, you know my parents didn't. I mean, they worked through school. They went to University of Illinois Chicago. They actually met as bagger and checker in a grocery store in high school, both as immigrants. Wow. Sounds like he was an amazing person. He is, yeah. Uh, so it's interesting though, because you went to work for JP Morgan right after school. So yeah. you could have ended up working for JP Morgan for I don't know, 36 years as an investment banker, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering, um, did you consider the entrepreneurship path right after school? Uh, what made you go into J.P. Morgan after having such an interesting entrepreneurial experience at Northwestern? The experience, uh, you know, with with Student Solutions at Northwestern, it wasn't necessarily, I think, at the time, sort of like I want to start my own thing or buy my own thing. It was just sort of like this was fun. This was a great education, but you know, I, I think I got caught up, caught up and swept in what was you know the conventional wisdom. I do look back though, and every single one of my interviews, they all were interested in my entrepreneurial experience. Right. Um, yeah. That and and I get it. I mean, I think probably in in 
you know, when I was getting interviewed for, again, management consulting, investment banking, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure these interviewees, interviewers just get bored with them, the same old, <laughs> same old. And there was yeah. like, you know, interest with the yeah, soccer star you know, with a company on the side. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so, you know, maybe it was, uh, uh, maybe it was a premonition or something like that, but, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did, um, you know, that when I was, you know, young and got that experience and, uh, you know, I think it helped build a, a foundation for, mm-hmm. um, you know, going obviously into private equity after that. Right. So, um, you know, it, you, you ask an interesting question because, um, you know, I was a I was a investment bank banking analyst for two years, and uh, my second year was two thousand one, and mm. the world had changed quite a bit from yeah. nineteen ninety nine to two thousand one, and and I I think I probably would have stayed if given the opportunity, but, uh, there were no, there was a moratorium on, on promotions from analyst to associate at that point. And so we were all, you know, regardless of how well you did or, or how interested you were in staying, um, every, our whole class was, you know, uh, encouraged to find other opportunities. So, um, had that not happened, I don't know that I would have, you know, made the move into private equity, but, but forcing sometimes, you know, you make, you know, the right decision um, based on sort of an external force. And in this case, it was a little bit of the economy. When you were working at Keystone, you looked at a deal that looked too small for the firm, and then you decided, okay, I'm just going to quit and buy this company for myself and with a partner. So how did you know this was the right move for you? Like, were you anxious? Mm -hmm. How were you feeling at this moment? We had had just exited um, a... Uh, a consolidation in in wholesale baking uh, in 2010, and I'd spent a lot of time with uh, this business. Uh, we'd done two acquisitions. I got to know the management team very well. I was very involved with that um, business. Uh, we sold it um, in 2010, and it was a, a very very good exit, um, which did a couple things. It gave me a little bit of cushion, uh, a little uh, uh, kind of walking around money, as they say. Um, it also <laughs> provided Kent and Scott with another very large uh, exit um, and the high class problem of having too much money is that <laughs> you need to move up market. You have to, you know, it's harder to put that capital mm. to work. So, gotcha. so they started migrating and wanting the firm to focus on larger um, businesses. Um, uh, I, I, I was still uh, sourcing a lot of opportunities for the firm and I still had relationships that were, um, you know, showing us deals that were small and, uh, um, Main Street Gourmet was a business that came to me while I was at Keystone. Uh, it was a, a wholesale bakery, one that I was kind of aware of, but I, I think I was able to determine very quickly that it was a really interesting situation. And I brought it to Kent and Scott, and they said it was too small. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, sort of asked them if uh, if I could pursue it on my own, and they said go for it. And uh, at the same time, my partner David Cho, my current partner David Cho, um, had left. Uh, he, we had overlapped at J.P. Morgan a little bit. He had worked at a couple other private equity firms. He was out uh, looking for a business to buy, and I was sending him things that were too small for us, gotcha. um, and with the potential idea that if the right opportunity came along, that I would join him. So, 
Um, so, so, so it sort of happened that way, as yeah, opposed to me yeah. saying, you know what, I'm ready to leave. I want to buy a business. Like, let's look for it. It was a little more reactive mm-hmm. than proactive. So um, I'm curious. I mean, I imagine you guys had 100, 200, I don't know, PowerPoints. Uh, they get you had to look through to look at different deals. Like, how did you know this was the right one? It sounds like it's like just the like a marriage, right? Yeah. How did you know you wanted to marry this company? Um, so it was a space I knew. You know, that's one of the challenges for any young entrepreneur is establishing credibility. Both, uh, you know, credibility that um, you know you you know know you can run that business or you can you know be ultimately in charge of someone's business but then also the mechanics of actually getting it done those are two sort of mental hurdles that you need to get a seller sort of over is that okay here's this young kid what do they know like do i have confidence that they can actually pull this off not just the acquisition but also being a steward of my business so um you know, I had a couple of things going for me. Um, you know, one is again that the exit in that space. Um, Kevin McDonough, who was the CEO of that business, gave me a phenomenal recommendation to those guys. I, I mean, I, I think it was one of the more important sort of elements of you know my my courtship of them was that uh, uh, Kevin, who was you know pretty well known, pretty respected in the industry. Um, you know, definitely vouched uh, for me in the process. As I say in class a lot, I mean, there's a definite fake it till you make it element to mm-hmm. um, particularly your first deal. Um, and uh, and there was definitely elements of that uh, in how we talked our way into this process. But you know, there were just some elements of this business that I really liked. Uh, one was the customer base. Um, like what we call blue chip customers in, in, in food service, Panera Bread, Potbelly, uh, um, you know, uh, Cracker Barrel, uh, Whole Foods, um, you know, just uh, very um, higher end sort of growing customers. I mean, that was one of the things that we looked at was that with the SKUs that they were providing with, uh, you know, to these customers, they didn't have to sell anything more, but just the growth rate of those customers uh, when we bought it, we're gonna provide us with, you know, high single digit, double digit growth without yeah. having to do anything else. Why were they selling? So uh, so two co-founders who grew up together, um, they uh, were looking to diversify their personal net worth. They had mm-hmm. created a lot of wealth in an illiquid asset and wanted to, uh, um, you know, provide for their families. But I think there's this other dynamic that happens um, with some entrepreneurs where, you know, so much of your net worth is tied up in this business, um, you become risk averse. This business was sort of hitting this point in time, and we see a lot of businesses that kind of get to this point in time where that next jump you know, you know, they were kind of, they had probably two or three years, you know, runway on their plant, um, you know, would require a pretty significant investment, effectively a double down for, for owner operators. And sometimes, you I'm know, sorry, what's a double, down? a double down. Yeah. So blackjack term where, you know, I've got a good card, I got a win, but I'm going to double my bet 
because oh. uh, I think I can... Double or nothing? Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh so they were approaching that and, and, and there's other things that um, entrepreneurs sometimes face, uh, you know, which, which, you know, there's, they start to think about like getting outside help. You know, one is oftentimes owner operators uh, get to this point where they've, they can't grow any further because of, I think two reasons a lot of times. One is uh, they run in a very flat organization um, where you know an owner operator or in this case kind of a you know partnership have like 10 to 12 direct reports and that's the way they started because they're very involved in the business but that's just not scalable and they have a difficult time sort of handing you know management responsibility to other people and that's something that um, we can kind of help with the other is investment in systems and controls um, Again, businesses sometimes are um, sort of hit a glass ceiling, um, you know, because it's difficult to scale them. And, you know, management talent is one of the reasons why they, they, they can't break through. And the other reason is sometimes the investment in technology because they're reactive to financials and metrics as opposed to being able to see what's going on on a more real time basis. So, um, so, you know, I, I think they were selling for a couple different reasons. Um, you know, one is certainly diversification net worth. Two is they wanted a strategic partner that could help them, uh, you know, grow the business faster than how, how they've grown it uh, in the past. Um, and, you know, I, I think they were uh, appreciative of the fact that, you know, they needed help to do it. Um, and they wanted a partner that had alignment of interests. So was this in... 2012? Uh, 2011. 2011. Okay. Yeah. So then walk me through the next few years of your life. Because mm -hmm. I know you bought another company. I know you became a professor at Kellogg. Yeah. Uh, how did all of that happen? Um, you know, we're, we're very involved. I mean, our model is, is less private equity, but, but not quite, you know, search fund or day-to-day or -day operator. It's something in the middle. Um, we felt like we had the bandwidth to... To, to look and buy another company. So um, we did buy another business, a chocolate confection company in California called Joe's Candies. This was from a husband and wife. This is a bit of a lifestyle business um, for them uh, and uh, needed a lot of work. And so uh, we felt like we had the bandwidth to kind of uh, sink our teeth into that. And that's been a, a more challenging uh, investment for us. Like I said, a lot of work and, and um, you know we've learned a lot through that process. I have a little more flexibility than most, so um, I think it's, it had given me, obviously, the opportunity to spend a lot of time with my family, which is great, uh, but then uh, also be involved in some nonprofits and then um, get involved with Kellogg. So um, I had been asked to kind of be a guest speaker at a couple different schools, um, Columbia and Booth. It was actually kind of funny because I was just having dinner once with one of your fellow students and she said, well, there's this thing called Search Fund. Have you heard about it? And I was like, no, tell me more. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when she was explaining to me that a lot of business school students can just buy an existing business like right after school and run it as a CEO, it just blew my mind. And she mentioned that each year you teach dozens of MBA students about this kind of entrepreneurship and many of them followed this path immediately after graduation or a few, a few years after. 
So why might this path be a great career for MBA students? Uh, you know, I, I think the pathway, um, the broader ETA pathway speaks to, you know, students who are looking for, uh, you know, a couple things that I think are interested in entrepreneurship, but not the conventional way of, you know, that entrepreneurship is sort of thought about, which is, you know, starting a business from scratch. Um, that experience, while you know, amazing, I, I think, and uh, it's also very difficult. The you know the the likelihood of success for a startup business is, you know, depending on the source, you know, ten percent or something like that. Um, there is a uh, a very important you know there there are a lot of important phases to becoming a successful entrepreneur from a startup phase that. Um, you know, from the discovery and from the validation, obviously we teach that here at Kellogg and, and do it with some phenomenal professors. Um, you know, that that is, it's just not as appealing to some students who want to be entrepreneurial, but don't want to start something. So, um, so we have, there's a lot of, I, I think we've uh, organized uh, the realm of ETA into a couple different um, pathways, mm -hmm. traditional search fund being you know part of it, which is, I mean, sort of a amazing uh, sort of structure that that you know when when people ask me what I teach and I start explaining search funds, a lot of people don't know what they are and they're like, that exists. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Like that's fantastic. But I think the evolution of uh, the model is opening up. ETA as a option for uh, students who might be a little more intimidated by that traditional search. The mm -hmm. traditional search has elements that I, I think can cause some pause for some students. You know, you're you're uh, you know you're searching on your own. It's a very lonely um, endeavor. Uh, you know, you have to be very comfortable with the acquisition portion of uh, the experience, and uh, I, I think historically it's been a little more. Um, favored to uh, you know aspiring entrepreneurs that have some transactional experience whether it's private equity or investment banking but you know arguably the most important part of the ETA experience is you know running a business and, and creating value and mm -hmm. so I think the additional pathways be it incubated or, or apprenticeship models you know provide a lot of options for students who come from uh, more managerial backgrounds um, military, um, uh, you know, more, more non-traditional. So, so you don't need to be an investment banker before to follow it. The yeah. I mean, you know, if, if I'm just an investor and yeah. like all things being equal, uh, I've got a business. I mean, you know, <laughs> and I can say it maybe because I was an <laughs> investment banker again, all things being equal, you know, the, the person that, you know, I would, I would invest in, you know, has leadership experience, you know, managing people, um, you know, dealing in sort of crises that are more execution operational as opposed to, you know, my client needs a pitch deck by tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So I took your class last year just because I was really interested in learning more. And I remember you talked a lot about the person that does well in this pathway as being an athlete. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that was really interesting because I consider myself a student athlete at the time. Yeah. So not at the time when I was an undergrad, but <laughs> <laughs> definitely not an athlete now. Uh, so I was wondering, like, what, can you tell our audience what do you mean by the athlete metaphor? You know, to be 
a good entrepreneur, you have to be kind of an, an athlete. You have mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. um, you know, really exercise all these different muscles um, because you know, your day-to-day -day experience as an entrepreneur, you're wearing a lot of hats from you know, chairman of the board to chief bottle washer, as they say. And um, you know, I could go through any given day um, when I was running one of our businesses and it's um, a lot of, there's a lot of negotiating going on with um, you know, employees, with vendors, with customers. There's obviously strategy involved. There's a lot of marketing, you know, even if you're in a B2B setting. Um, you know, the most, and, and I think if you ask any ETA entrepreneur this, you know, the most important thing is sort of people management. It's sort of the more side of it, management mm -hmm. organizations. You know, the, the, the athlete metaphor, I think, is applicable because um, you don't know exactly what you're going to need. But, you know, if you've, if you've been cross-trained, you know, well, uh, if you're nimble, if you can adapt to situations um, and, and, and you're confident that, you know, your, your training, your background, you, the mentors that you've put around you, uh, the team that you've put in place, um, you have to be confident. You have to be optimistic that you're going to get through it. Mm. So basically what you're saying is anyone could start a business. I mean, could buy a business after school. Uh, if they have the right personality traits and the right motivation. So can you tell me more about the, a couple of pathways that um, students can take? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of sort of the formalization of ETA um, stems around the traditional search fund, which, uh, you know, involves uh, a, a, a student or a, a recently uh, uh, sort of a recent alum uh, you know, basically going to market to um, raise a small fund to help them go find a business to buy. Uh, there is a very established network of traditional search fund investors, many of whom are, uh, uh, you know, exited uh, search fund deals themselves and so appreciate the model um, and uh, appreciate and can provide a lot of uh sort of guidance, uh, you know, through that, through that process. You know, the models, as I said, evolve from, uh, you know, from the traditional search to, um, you know, what we call funded search, which is maybe just, uh, instead of raising capital from a number of disparate investors, um, you know, one investor, there are private equity firms and family offices that will specifically back an entrepreneur to go find a business and, and buy it. And there are, advantages and disadvantages behind that. There's been this evolution of incubated searches. So, <clears throat> um, you know, removing that kind of, you know, uh, loan search element to the process by putting uh, a searcher basically in an office with peers and interns and resources uh, in an attempt to accelerate the process by which a good company is acquired. And uh, it has that the incubated search tends to have elements of a funded search in that there's a single capital um, source, but, but kind of takes a different, takes a different um, bent on it. Um, you know, as we teach, um, you know, the other pathways are, are, are a little different. Uh, the the self-funded approach is it's effectively 
uh, just a name for finding a business mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of getting it under a letter of intent and then raising money um, or, or, or uh, you know, if, if you have the means to buy it on your own. Yeah. One of the more interesting areas of what we call ETA is, is this apprenticeship model. Um, uh, Professor Brad Moorhead, who I think, you, you know, you've got a podcast with, uh, you know, we, we kind of uh, uh, comes from that line of, of, of pathway where, uh, you know, working for a, a company, a CEO, but, you know, specifically in a role that uh, is deemed to either become the CEO or to be put in a position to be invested in another business unit or, or you know, maybe future acquisition as CEO. Um, you know, it doesn't have the transactional element that a lot of, uh, 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 of the other pathways have. I think we still incorporate it into acquisition because you tend to be buying into ownership in those, in those situations. Or mm-hmm. that apprenticeship experience is your stepping stone uh, into into buying and running your own business. Obviously, we also here at Kellogg include the independent sponsor model as part of the ETA continuum. Um, uh, you know, again, the, the big difference being that as an independent sponsor, which is my background, we don't approach opportunities as if we know we are going to be owner operators. Um, but uh, again, in my experience, we're buying businesses on a one-off basis because we can be flexible. We can spend time with our businesses. Um, two owner operators, we have a lot of trust with them. Right alignment of interest, good management team. They're still running it. Mm-hmm. The chocolate business, um, retirement situation. Um, um, I think it's important, and I think what we're trying to do at Kellogg is be very agnostic to the pathway and really introduce that continuum of opportunities and options to students um, versus I think some other schools may be a little more, um, you know, biased towards certain certain models. Gotcha. That's great. Uh, I just thought of another uh, class that I had with you and I'm just going to say some numbers here that really impressed me. Um, there, one was like there are more than 200,000 companies in the U.S. with many around the world with steady revenues between 5 million and 50 million. And then 51% of those owners in the US are over the age of 55. And then remember you said something like more than 100,000 companies need management transition in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that seems really like a great opportunity, but like how hard is it to find a company? Is there a lot of competition? Um, what can we expect if we follow this path after school? To buy, you know, to, to find that that one prince, uh, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find <laughs> that one prince. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, th- there's a couple dynamics going on on a macro level. I think you addressed, you know, some of them. There were a lot of businesses that were started um, kind of post World War II by baby boomers, or mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I think there's a this just the secular trend of. Uh, you know, kids not necessarily wanting to do what their parents did that, you know, maybe in the, uh, you know, back in the, you know, pre-World War II, that was less relevant. You know, you, you kind of went into the family business. Um, that was your, um, you know, your, your, your family mandate. Um, so, you know, you, you have a lot of 
business owners you know, retiring, uh, you don't have built-in succession plans oftentimes. So there is you know, supply, uh, if you will. Um, at the same time, uh, you, know, you bring up another point, there's a lot more demand today. Um, there are, um, obviously there's always been um, you know, strategic buyers, there are uh, lots and lots of private equity firms, and there has been a record amount of money raised by private equity firms to be invested in private companies. Mm. Um, you know, just if you think about institutional capital, um, you know, private equity has historically been part of alternative investment strategies, and uh, it's done well enough where um, you know endowments such as Northwestern allocates more of uh, you know its capital to alternative investment, including mm. private equity firms. So. Um, You've got money coming down market uh, interested in in this space. You've got um, a lot of smaller private equity firms or independent sponsors spinning out of of other uh, uh, firms, and then you have a very uh, robust uh, sort of group of aspiring, ambitious MBA students coming out of top tier you know schools every year. <clears throat> um, you know, looking for, you know, businesses to buy because they've been inspired by some of the stories that they've heard. So, um, yes, it's competitive. And, and I mentioned it's competitive. And, and one of the reasons why we decided to focus is that it's become competitive and we, you know, the markets are efficient and you need to have some sort of an angle. But um, I, I think we continue to hear that, you know, there's there's success out there. Um, you're just this past month, uh, two recent Kellogg alums acquired businesses. Yeah, I don't have all of the details of them, but 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 Kellogg has two of the most sort of well-known kind of search funds that uh, came out of uh, ETA. Uh, one is, uh, I don't know, this class of 1997 that Kellogg, uh, you know, is, it will go down in history. Um, Dustin Sellers, um, uh, as a 97 grad, uh, through a traditional search, he brought he bought a business called ProService um, in Hawaii, uh, which um, it provides a, a wide range of outs outsourced services to um, you know a lot of small and medium sized businesses. And he's from Hawaii and um, was able to uh, grow that, recap it over time, and uh, uh, was a has been a very successful uh, business. Uh, he went through a majority recap, I think, in 2013 and uh, took some of the proceeds um, from that to uh, incubate a, a fund called Coa Capital, uh, where he not only buys businesses, but also uh, invests in aspiring entrepreneurs looking to do things in Hawaii. Um, Mike Smirklow, one of his classmates, um, uh, very uh, accessible and and uh, uh, charming individual uh, bought a business called Service Source, um, which I believe went through an IPO in 2011. Um, I think he's still involved with that business. Um, you know, he does a lot of speaking. He's very accessible to uh, entrepreneurs interested in the. Um, in the search, in the traditional search phase. And actually Todd Tracy, also 97, um, through a traditional search, um, bought a business called Hemasource, um, in, in which I think he exited in 2014. And 
you know, I, I think the most interesting and relevant thing is all, all three of them, um, you know, invest in, in search fund deals. I mean, they've, they've, they've done very well for themselves. Um, not only are, um, uh, willing to share their time and experience, but also under certain circumstances, uh, are, are investors. And that's true of most of the community. You know, we have some more recent exits out of, uh, out of Kellogg, including Mark Anderegg, who I think you're going to be talking with, um, and uh, um, uh, Brad Moorhead. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll get a, a flavor for some of the more recent exits uh, in our community. That's great. Um, so I think the last question that I want to ask you is, if we traded places tomorrow, what advice would you give me and other MBA students uh, for the day? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had just sort of like a killer, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a, a killer cliche that I could create, uh, you know, out of it. But, you know, I mean, I, I think I think I found that teaching, um, you know, forces me to really sort of take the experience and organize it in such a way where I think people can kind of get their their arms around it. But but it is just an entrepreneurial leap of faith in a lot of ways. And um you know, the, 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 the tools that you've acquired, uh, through your life, um, by being an active listener, by being intellectually curious, um, by, um, you know, appreciating the mentorship that you've had, uh, you know, by obtaining a Kellogg MBA, the, 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 the culmination of those things ultimately should give you confidence to take that entrepreneurial leap. So, I mean, you know, if it's you or if it's, you know, peers of yours, where you are in your life stage, you are in a perfect position to take an entrepreneurial risk. Um, and that doesn't, that, that's not all, that window isn't always going to be there. Um, the older you get, the less likely you are to be in a position to do it. You, you might think, oh, but then I'll have the means, I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, more, more personally secure uh, to do it. Um, <laughs> quite the contrary, you know, uh, you know, you've got um, a family to support. Uh, you're, you're less likely to be open to moving to, you know, wherever to, to, to make it happen. You've got, you know, house payments. Um, uh, you've got, you know, a, a you know, a social life that is uh, dependent on a, a certain lifestyle. Now is the time to, you know, take that entrepreneurial leap because, you know, even failure, and, and it's even hard to even define what, what failure is uh, when you're an entrepreneur, um, the, the downside of it is so de minimis relative to the potential upside. And I mean, I, I think that's you know, one of the big takeaways that we talk about in my class, and, and it's, you know, Sam Zell, who uh, is the benefactor of, of one of the programs that I run here, I, I think uses this question to ask, um, you know, when he gets a deal is, you know, are you being compensated for the risk? And I think that question is so relevant when you're not just evaluating a business to acquire, but also this point in your life, you know, it, are you being compensated for the risk? Like the, the risk um, 
in taking an entrepreneurial endeavor today is not that low. I mean, there's not that, the, the, the risk of failure isn't um, so demonstrative that you, know, you won't be able to get your life back even if it wasn't successful. But the upside is so compelling that it compensates you for, for taking that risk. So um, I don't know, I kind of uh, threw that together there. Uh, oh, I like it, minutes. it's great, thank you. Yeah.